Wait, I'm going to do what my seven-year-old does. Your teachers have them do countdown to calm. <laughs> oh, my God. You count down 10, 9, 8. <laughs> oh, my gosh. And okay. that's our open. Thanks very much. <laughs> no, it's <laughs> Thank not. you, everybody. <laughs> no, countdown <not>. to calm. <laughs> <sighs> oh, man. <laughs> Hello and welcome to episode four of the Word of the Witnesses, or the Word of the no, Witnesses. That's, no, that's when Jen oh my goodness! Oh, you stole it! You stole it from her. Oh my gosh, you did! I was so prepared too. Oh, this is ruined. We are a rewatch podcast, so we will discuss spoilers for the entire series. If you have not finished, please go back and watch the show, and then join us later. Uh, we are your co-hosts. I am Beep, and I'm joined as always by Cece. And this evening, we also have back our frequent guest, Jen. Hey, Jen. Hi, everybody. It's great to be back on oh, the word <laughs> of the witnesses. Oh, you're you so sad. You yes. ruined everything. Christmas is canceled. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for having me back, guys. I've been listening to the podcast, and it's it sounds pretty good. Awesome. Ah, thanks, CD. So where can you find us? We are now on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Um, if anybody else needs... Oh, my gosh. You guys, I told you not to um, and I'm umming right now. <laughs> <laughs> if you need to find us elsewhere, if you just reach out to us on Twitter or by email or anything, I can add it to other platforms. But right now, that's where we are. So we have huge news. Huge. Huge. So thanks so much to you all, uh, Terry and the writers and the cast who've been so unbelievably supportive. You guys sent in awesome questions and we're excited to chat with Mr. Metallus. That pod will come out early next week for your Thanksgiving travels if you're in the U.S. We have another announcement. Compose, compose yourself. Good Lord. Is this a reverse of last time? Do I I need to... It's compounding, right? Because Terry <laughs> is coming on, which amazing. So excited. And then Mr. Todd Stashwick went ahead and threw his hat in the ring as well, or his knife in the <laughs> ring, as it were. You guys! <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> we're having a Deacon podcast. Holy cow, the Scav King himself. He's coming on our podcast in early December. Um, and we're going to do the same thing that we're doing with um, Terry Metallis. He is going to be answering your questions. So please submit your questions to us by November 30th. You can do that either on Twitter at 12M Rewatch Pod, or you can send us an email at Word of the Witnesses, that's plural, at gmail.com. And we're super, super excited and grateful that all of these incredible people that we're just huge fans of are coming to talk to us and mostly for you um, so that you get to hear their thoughts about the series as a whole. So today we're going to be talking about... The Night the Room. room. Working on my night room. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Jesus. You just were lying in wait. 
And we thought it was going to be the word of the witnesses, and you were just waiting to do that. Look, you you all have you look. You've taken my my main gimmick away, so I had to I had to come up with something on the fly. Is Emmett joining us? Is our potential podcast mascot? We're not sure if he's actually the one yet, John. So he's okay. So the little potato is passed out next to me. They went to doggy daycare. Um, so if he wakes up, he might, you know, he might sniff around, but he is, he's, he's dead right now. He played hard. He did play hard. Got it. His fuck the boys. But yeah, Emmett is the official podcast mascot. So don't even, (laughs) don't even think about replacing him with somebody else. Cause I will sue. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Bonsai's heavy panting on our last pod. Pretty amazing. that i was like what is that no it wasn't me it wasn't me and it wasn't it's bonsai (laughs) (laughs) then at my house you have augie over here right now he's digging between the couch cushions and i'm not sure why (laughs) (laughs) whereas my dog is downstairs because i'm basically in a panic room behind two doors walled off (laughs) from my three children (laughs) and my dog (laughs) a panic room to escape from your children and your dog that's Hashtag amazing. parenting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or they would be joining us for sure. So, <laughs> all right. So, holy mythology building episode. This episode like breaks my brain when you watch it now. It was written by Richard E. Robbins and directed by David Boyd. Interestingly, uh, Richard Robbins, also, he wrote a few other episodes, Emergence, Resurrection. But what I love is he wrote Meltdown, which is the episode where all of the ghosts, the physical, actual um, Jones's test subjects that we see the photos of in this episode. He wrote the episode where it was kind of the bottle episode um, in season two, where the machine started just firing, like misfiring, the one where mm-hmm. Sam disappears. And all of those like super gross kind of horror movie bodies came back um, mm-hmm. all over the facility. So he wrote that episode <laughs> as well. Um, we also watched the Nightroom kind of redux scene from One Minute More, and that was written by Kristen Rydell and directed by David Grossman. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> and fuck you, Cece, for making fun of Jesus Christ. We're not off to a good start, Jen. <laughs> well, I mean, okay, so it's like I, I'm a good podcast guest, and I follow directions. <laughs> so I watched, last night I watched The Night Room, like, okay, let me put some notes down the thing. Now Cece wants me to go watch that little scene in One Minute More. So I start watching One Minute More, and it immediately starts with, with, with Jennifer, you know, drawing her hands bloody, oh, uh, and and then there's Jones with her her hand twitching because she's dying, and then Cassie taking care of of poor Jennifer's hand and caring for her because because Deacon's dead, and it's just like fuck you guys for making me watch this. And I'm just like watching this, trying to find, scanning through this episode, trying to find the one scene I'm supposed to watch. It's like tears streaming down my face. And then of course I can't, I see, okay, so I watched the one scene. I'm like, okay, what the fuck? Why did Cece want me to watch this? I don't know. But what else is in this episode? Because I haven't rewatched, I haven't rewatched season four yet. And it's just like, I just went careening down a feels roller coaster. Uh, Rewatched Hannah reading her letter to Cole, and then the the scene at the end with the with Hannah uh, Jones and Cole drinking together, and I just CC from the bottom of my heart, <laughs> fuck you very much. 
Thank you for your sacrifice, Jen. I ended up watching the whole thing. I'm pretty sure that's why I took a nap this afternoon from the exhaustion of sobbing. I feel like a lawsuit is incoming, CC. You'll have to defend yourself, but I am going to sue you for emotional damages. Oh, man, that wasn't even my area. Uh. (laughs) You're going to lose so hard. All right. I mean, honestly, the instructions were just to read, watch that one scene. But I didn't know where it was. <laughs> yeah, so you in my defense. Stamps. Okay. It's on um, you. I bet. I hope you feel better. I'm sorry that you watched it again. Um, <sighs> all right. So let's get into the episode. So we're breaking this up into kind of uh, the the A plot and the B plot. And we're going to start with the B plot, which is basically getting to know Dr. Katarina Jones. And it opens up with Jones and Cole actually just being really sweet to each other. And you kind of notice the shift where they're like, you get rest. No, you get rest. And it's just like really, <laughs> it's just like all adorable. And then, and then Cole invites the boss to happy hour. <laughs> And it reminds me of like, have you ever had that like work happy hour where somebody invites the boss? Uh, and, and we always like, invite the boss. Who else is going to pick up the check? <laughs> <laughs> it was always like the, oh, yeah, no, invite. Yeah, no, sure. And, yeah. yeah oh, Bring your like, corporate card. I thought that this was the happy hour where we bitched about working here. <laughs> so, and for the last six months, it has been, but okay. So that drinking scene at the beginning of the episode is just an example of one of the reasons why I love the show. Because even though it sometimes the plot goes at like breakneck speed, it makes the time for people to just sit around and drink and you learn all of these, I mean, it's not like we don't, there are a lot of really interesting kind of character takeaways and a lot of nuggets to like unpack from the conversation. But I love that this show has just always made time for people, I mean, basically, it's it's drinking together, <laughs> I think is kind of the common thread, right? I'm trying to think if anybody ever shares a meal together, <clears throat> but it's kind of just... Aside from Cole just weirdly eating stuff with (laughs) forks held weirdly. (laughs) Actually, he's usually the only one eating. (laughs) So I love that when Cole walks into the room, Ramsey says the last great hope for mankind, which he is, but he's also the fucking problem. <laughs> so it's kind of a great love, like different layers to that line. So when they sit around drinking, I think did Jones bring a bottle of whiskey? Is that what they're drinking? Yeah, and here's my problem. I got obsessed with trying to identify the distiller of that bottle of whiskey um, because yes, I love that somebody else pauses and goes down freeze frame rabbit holes. <clears throat> did you find well, it? Well, be- because I th- well. I think it's a, a, a Balvenie, uh bottle of whiskey because of the shape of the bottle. And I don't know why I got obsessed with it. I guess it's just because I can no longer drink whiskey. So, And Balvenie is one of my favorite distilleries. And I, I was just like, oh, Jones, you have such great taste in scotch. Yeah. And she was is saving that the it. same bottle in one minute more? <laughs> oh. How dare you? Don't. Don't bring up that scene. <laughs> oh, my God. Wow. We're going to have to follow up on that. That's super interesting. Well, it might be the same bottle just because they use the same prop. I don't. I hate to be the, the Debbie Downer of realism, but 
Shut it, it Jen. No, no, that <laughs> doesn't make you a downer. Literally, the only reason I brought it up was to agitate you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it is the same bottle. Well, I reject your attempt to agitate me. I will not cry on the podcast. <laughs> we'll see. Um, all right. So there were a couple of interesting things. Like, well, we can. I love that Jones saying mission is the secret drinking game. <laughs> I mean, we could. I don't know if people are drinking while they rewatch, but we. I think I saw at one point circulating like a Twelve Monkeys watching um, drinking game, and if if Jones saying the mission wasn't on the list, it really should have been. But everybody might have had like alcohol poisoning by the exactly. But there are a couple interesting things. So before we get into sort of the record scratch moment that ends their revelry, Jones mentions if our timeline is reset. Poof, we are erased and our mission, um, like, basically that everything will be reset. So I think it's interesting sort of on two levels. First, I mean, you forget how much, and we mentioned this actually when we were discussing, when the three of us were discussing the pilot, but you forget how often early in season one they were telling the audience what the stakes were for all the characters. (laughs) You know, that like everyone you're getting attached to, everything's going to be reset. Jones mentions the Godel uh, closed timeline theory. And if you've ever gone on Reddit for this show, there's always <laughs> this debate between like the closed timeline theory and, in, and the multiverses. And maybe because the last time I took physics was like my freshman year of college. So maybe one of you guys can explain this better than I can. <laughs> <laughs> You're so cute. <laughs> The first one is the one that this show subscribes to, and the second one is something different than that. <laughs> yeah, but that, well, Beep, I could have said that. <laughs> Close. I mean, <laughs> you asked. <laughs> so the closed timeline theory is that there may be different. Oh wait, there may be different loops, but you. A multiverse is like spinning off. It's like what happens like in comic books where it's like spinning off and there's like different, like almost on fringe where there's like a different version of you that exists in a different timeline. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Then spins out and continues on sort of like into infinity. Whereas the closed timeline means that you're like working within, there may be different circles, but it's all within one big circle. Yeah. there It's all one universe. And so... If, and that's why if one thing changes, then it all has to adjust to make that fit. So that was one um, signal. And I don't know if it was a signal to the <clears throat> audience that this is, this is, these are the rules of this show. Mm-hmm. Or if it was just kind of thrown in for like debate. Because people actually still debate this on like even as, as recently as this week. Arguing that different episodes in the show actually... Uh, support claims that it's like a multiverse. But um, it, the record scratch moment is when uh, Ramsey and Cole ask about Jones's decidedly un-German last name. And it, she says she was it was her husband's name and she was married for a few days. And then it so interestingly, like she leaves the room and it cuts to the time machine, <laughs> which was built by her husband, um, melting down. And so it's definitely like a signal of, wow, there's a, she does not want to talk about this. And there is a <laughs> lot more to this story. <laughs> Just put a pin in that and remember that. Yeah, no, I, I like, I like kind of this, these early scenes with Jones 
and how she immediately shuts down any emotional connection that anyone can make to her. Because I think her leaving the room and just not going into her marriage at all is pretty telling about kind of how closed off she is at times, Mm -hmm. especially in the early parts of the series. And obviously, you know, that changes along the way, but I like like the kind of how it... it works as both moving the story forward and, and like what you said, indicates that there's a deeper story here, a bigger mystery to be explored. And then it's also an indicator of how she just kind of shuts down these conversations to get to know her a little bit better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They do a great job of, of utilizing conversation for their exposition. Right. Yes. And so we learned I think these this nuggets. is the first time that... They've brought up, and it was interesting to me that it's Jones to do it, but I think this is the first time that they've brought up, we are erased. Because it's always been about Cole up until now, you know? I do this, I'm erased. We shoot him, I'm erased. Whatever happens, I'm erased. And she makes it clear at this point, like we had kind of talked about before, like, it's not just you, it is this timeline, it's this future. We're all going to be reset. Yeah, and and even Ramsey whisper whispers that in 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 the further down in the episode like poof but my hands are still here <laughs> i still feel my hands what are look these? at my hands they're still here <laughs> did you practice that too <laughs> no that was that's total improv guys so so i know it's very impressive but everybody just calm down <laughs> multi Multi-talented over here. The other, I mean, the other thing that the learning that there was a husband and that's where her name comes from, it also sets up, um, I guess I had forgotten that we first see the embroidered baby blanket with the name Hannah, but don't get an explanation for it in the same episode. Mm -hmm. So it's setting up the, you know, maybe we would have come to that conclusion anyway, that there's a baby blanket with a name on it. But, but, but that top of the episode, letting us know that Jones was married, but then you hear just for a few days and then you see a baby blanket with a name on it later in the episode and they cut to it twice. Um, Yeah. That it's kind of setting up. Okay. So like what's, Right? It just raises all of these questions. Wait, it was just for a few days, and what's this baby blanket? And it's just like all of these great little clues that, you know, there's not a yeah. lot. You know, when we turn to Max saying to Ramsey, how well do you even know her? You realize as the audience, like, there's a lot that we don't know. Well, that that's what's, I think, really good about it, this. Maybe this episode in particular, but I think the series overall is that when it doesn't reveal, it also hides a nugget somewhere. Uh, so if we mm-hmm. went back to the, the previous scene where we were talking about their drinking, and then she reveals that she was married, and then that's cut off to, re- to go to the time machine, they, there's a mystery there, and it, they kind of point to it when they cut to the time machine. And then the baby blanket, again, is a little gem that it's not necessarily hidden, but it's like, here's something for the audience. Take a good gander at it. This is going to be important again in the future. So, and they do that kind of with the night room as well, with some of the, the things that are revealed or not revealed there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's what I really like about the show. And I wanted to ask you guys, now that we're talking about this, and um, I think, Beep, it was you had made the point that the show is really good about revealing some stuff during these conversations. Mm-hmm. We often 
we often hear about this narrative rule, quote unquote rule, that you should show, not tell. But I feel like this show does a lot of telling, but I, but I, I, I think it does it in such an effective and powerful and affecting way that I don't mind that it's not all bang, bang action sequences with things that happen that have consequences here, here, and here. They actually slow down a little and luxuriate a little bit in these conversations that do this telling rather than showing. And I wanted to get your guys's opinion if if I'm right about that and if what your thoughts are about kind of breaking that narrative rule. I think in part it works because the whether it's both the writing and the acting that even when <clears throat> you realize that you're getting like an information dump, it it seems like just two people or whatever how many people actually talking in real life. Mm-hmm. So this isn't like, I mean, I can think of other shows where <laughs> Game of Thrones does it a very different way, <laughs> where like you would have somebody talking and then it's almost like a monologue and then some other stuff going on in the background. Um, <laughs> or, um, I mean, there's a lot of other shows where it like, I mean, there's there's some monologues in this show, but they actually use them pretty sparingly. Um, mm-hmm. And it just... I mean, people do, right, like, we do tell each other things in real life that in conversation. And so it's not necessarily, I don't think it's necessarily, like, needs to be, like, a rule of TV that you're not, that you're not, like, that you shouldn't be filling in the audience by talking, by characters talking, because people tell each other things in real life. But however they pull it off, both with the combination of the writing and acting, when you're getting into characters' heads for their motivations or their like point of views it it just sounds like the way people talk in the real world about this yeah things. i guess it's i guess that's the important thing about it is that none of it feels like a contrivance or a a piece of dialogue between one or more character two or more characters that 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 feels artificial it all is very very organic and i don't mind shows that do the telling because a lot of the telling often reveals the inner thoughts and feelings of people that isn't isn't necessarily that can't necessarily be expressed through simple action or emoting. And there are some shows that do it fairly well, but there are some shows that rely too much on on action and actors showing you through their facial expressions what they're feeling, and that that removes that removes kind of like the human element of people reacting to one another because you're just seeing one person trying to express something. And in 12 Monkeys, you often have people expressing themselves very effectively and 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 emotionally to one another, and that feels very human. And I, I, that's what I love about the show so much is that nothing feels just like thrown in for shits and giggles. It just it, it feels so so wonderful to watch a show that isn't scared to slow down a little bit, have a scene between folks drinking. There's a lot of important scenes between people drinking now that I think of it. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um and, and it just it, it just it feels so connected to the audience that way. Like you're almost the other person in the room sharing a drink with these folks. Right. I mean, because isn't that, I mean, depending on whether or not you drank in real life, but that's when someone's like, okay, we need to grab a drink. Right. And you sit down and that's when you talk about stuff. And sometimes it's casual conversation. Sometimes 
both in real life and on the show, they're talking about much deeper things. But you're right. It is something like throughout the show. I'm just like thinking now season two, there's a lot of important conversations that happen while having a drink. Um, same as season Especially three. Especially if it's tea. <laughs> 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 um, there's a lot of almost like there's a lot of ritual or thawing of relationships that happen over having a drink. Mm -hmm. Like in season two, Cassie ordering a whiskey sour for Cole is kind of a, okay, we, we let's like kind of cool down on this tension between us or Cole bringing back a bottle of whiskey for Deacon. Yeah. Right. Like a signal of like, okay, we can now work together. Like let's let not quite bygones be bygones, but we're not at each other's throats anymore. So there, you're right. There's there's a lot of um, – and I can think of other shows where that's been on, like that's been used on The Expanse. Some of my favorite scenes from shows like, I don't know, like The Sopranos, it was just people sitting around drinking and eating and talking um, because that's what people do in real life. Yeah, it's just an inherently human moment. There's not – you don't have to build tension into something – to express a shit ton of information and emotion. I think that the way the show is structured with a lot of the elements of the plague being such a mystery, it makes sense that they would be discussing different portions of that because no one person knows every element. Yeah. While Jones is definitely, you know, the smartest person in her own way, she's never there when any of the action is happening. So she has to get that feedback from Cole and Cole finds out stuff from Jennifer and they find out stuff from Cassie. You know what I mean? So when they all get together, it makes sure that it makes sense that everybody would be revealing their portion of the puzzle and then trying to like put their heads together and find out something different. And I also think that those smaller moments accentuate when we get to the action. Mm-hmm. Because you know, what's going on. I mean, Look, like, you can have the end of the world or you can have this, like, right, like, huge, you know, like, season finale level of, like, a cliffhanger, like, what's going to happen. But if you don't care about the characters and you don't know them and, like, kind of understand what's motivating different characters leading up to that, then you just don't care as much, right? Oh, I mean, preach. So, so, I mean, I think the other thing that's interesting is with in this scene, they're talking about that they're all going to be erased. But at the same time, they're all getting to know each other better and building relationships and maybe feeling affection more towards for each other. So it's kind of setting up what at the end of the show is going to be so like heart wrenching mm-hmm. is that how much these people all mean to each other at the end and it's all going to be erased and they're talking about it early on and while they're talking about it they are actually like sharing this communal experience and getting to know each other better and so it's setting up both what's going to be the long-term problem if the mission succeeds then none of these people will potentially even remember that the other existed or we should actually assume that they won't but at the same time while they're talking about it these people are getting to know each other and forming relationships <laughs> so even early on it's setting up what is sort of like what you're feeling is so like tragic at the end of the series. Yeah, you really, Cece, again, fuck you very much. I'm not going to cry on your podcast. <laughs> this all gonna... feels, this feels like a trap. <laughs> we need to come up with like, at the end, we'll just count how many times you've told me to fuck off by the end of the podcast. <laughs> oh, 
start going down that 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 feels lane and i'm just like oh no stop it i'm not gonna i'm not crying enough yesterday over this show uh, so just turning back to the conversation between max and ramsey where max basically tells ramsey look there are stories that we have heard on the west seven and i thought it was just kind of bullshit from deacon but we call her you heard stories of a of a german doctor called doctor i think it's grim Mm -hmm. right dr grim about quote turning people inside out end quote which is just oh my mind immediately went to you remember the guy in meltdown with like his entrails hanging out oh it was like something something out of the end of braveheart like it was oh so gross so my mind immediately went to that me too oh did you yeah but that takes us up to ramsey rifling through jones's room and Jesus Christ, when he finds the Hannah blanket, it's just like a total feels attack. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I feel like this, like you on me. <laughs> but one thing I that I hadn't noticed before, and I don't know if this is intentional or not, or I'm just like reading into it, but there was a lot of imagery in the episode that kind of was in parallel to one to the other with the two plots so you have all these like they're repairing the machine and you have all these like sparks flying like people are welding and you have that same effect in the night room with when the pallid man is trying to get through the vault um to the corpse and then the whole wake it goes back and forth especially maybe like the three like I don't know, second half of the episode, it keeps pinging back and forth between Jones and the corpse and Jones and the corpse. And I I don't think, I think I've read that at this point, they didn't necessarily know, I think, maybe this is wrong. I don't think that they necessarily knew who the body was at that point. Well, we haven't even seen Olivia yet. Right, 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 right. So they didn't know who the corpse was, but now when you watch it, What's interesting about it is it's cutting back and forth between the corpse, who we know is Olivia, and Jones. And at one point, Jones even says, like, her voice is trailing off saying, lost in time. And then the editing takes you right back to the corpse's face with the eye. So it's just kind of an interesting juxtaposition or linking those two, because Jones, who invented time travel... And the witness who's trying to destroy time are basically like the two opposing forces that drive the narrative, right? I mean, we still we have our heroes that are helping Jones and the Army of the Twelve Monkeys that are supporting the witnesses' efforts, but they're basically like the two figureheads of and the ones driving what is like the whole plot of the show. And the second half of the episode goes back and forth and back and forth between the two of them. I think this early in the show, though, there's a lot, especially in this episode, in the way that it's cut as well, and the way Jennifer is constantly talking about eyes, there's a lot, in my opinion, that points toward Cole being the corpse at this point. Yeah. Um, and we'll get to that later, because I totally read it that way, because I, I interpreted actually, I, I interpreted some things wrong. No, I think but a lot, Jen, I think a lot of people did. I think there was a lot of speculation, even as late going into the finale, that like, that the corpse was cool because of that headache moment in this episode. So you're totally not alone. Oh, okay. Yeah. But just to, so Ramsey is rifling through her thing. She finds the Hannah blanket. Um, if you're rewatching at home, you probably start crying. Then it moves on to <laughs> the, <laughs> um, all of the photos of Jones's test subjects, which are really like 
graphic of people like screaming in pain while Jones is like looks like a taking like, selfies. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. (laughs) Shaking those Polaroid pictures. (laughs) And then, you know, it's interesting because, so Jones comes into the room, and then she and Ramsey have this conversation that's kind of uh, what is, whether you look at the things that Jones did with these test subjects basically being... I mean, essentially, like, it looked pretty torturous, um, the things that happened to them. And they're having this conversation, this moral conversation about what's wrong, like, what is, quote, unquote, wrong versus what is necessary. And Ramsey mm-hmm. asks Jones, there's nothing you wouldn't do for this. And she says, no. And what I think is really, there's so many layers to why this conversation and I think it's actually, it's all things that I think were intentional, but whether or not they were, that are really interesting about all the layers to this conversation. So just on the surface, they're having this moral debate about whether it is acceptable to sacrifice a few human beings because the testing went awry and they died, and they died horribly, or... You have, on the other hand, like seven billion. And Jones has like really wonderful and like frankly beautiful, like between the music and the way the objects that are in the room, the paintings, and she's talking about, you know, Mozart and music and Shakespeare and all of the things, not only the the lives that are lost because of the plague, but basically the entire body of like human knowledge and art and like human civilization. So that's that's the surface, like the few versus the many which is a moral debate that the show has been re- like setting out and return will return to over and over again. That's on the surface. On the other hand, the the episode shows us Hannah's blanket twice. And we know that in season 2, the one thing that ultimately is what motivated Jones to invent time travel is losing one person. Like her person, her daughter. Mm. So, and and then Add another layer that you have Ramsey, who right now is taking the position that maybe, I mean, I think he ultimately concedes at the end because he doesn't go and tell everybody else about what Jones did. But you have Ramsey saying, like, how you go about doing things, the the means that you use versus the end, the means matter. The, the interesting thing is we know that despite the fact that Ramsey is taking the stance now, a few episodes later, when he finds out it's his son who's going to be on the line and his existence that's at stake, he is going to take actions siding with the 12 monkeys that would doom 7 billion people to dying. And so it's just like it makes my head hurt in the best way, like what they're debating and then what Jones isn't, you know, she's framing her motivations as lofty and for the many, but deep in her heart, like the, what drove her to do this is losing one person. And Ramsey is taking like the opposite, like the, the, what, the few matter and how you do things matter, but then he doesn't care the consequences of what he does later if he can save his son. It's a lot. <laughs> yeah, it, and this got me to thinking like, is is the good place just a remake of 12 monkeys <laughs> because isn't this one versus seven billion just the trolley problem yeah and then there's there's jeremy Baramy, which is the the good place model of time 
this could all be taking place <laughs> in the dot over the eye in Barami. Like, guys, consider this theory. There's a lot here to, to dive into. In fact, I think you should completely scrap this podcast and just create a new podcast on the, the conceit that The Good Place is indeed 12 Monkeys Re-Envisioned. And, that, and, and thank you. This has been my TED Talk. Why don't you go into that Reddit discussion that Dina was talking about with the timelines and the multiverses and just throw that out there. Let me know how that works for you. <laughs> the one thing, oh, the, a couple things t- that I, I notice about this scene and about kind of the show in general and, and the way it frames, sometimes frames these conversations is that it, it often just has two people just just step outside uh, and and put up their dukes with one another and just fight it out. Basically, we see we see it with Ramsey here and Jones is kind of battling through this conversation. Ramsey and and Cassie do it later on, it, and I like how the show puts these people into conflict and they actually talk it out and you you get to understand the motivations that people have and. I kind of talked about this earlier, but it, it almost feels like the scenes linger too long on some of these emotional moments. And I'm not saying that in a bad way. That is not a criticism because it's, it's like, it's necessary to establish some of the, to these deep rooted beliefs that the characters have and the stakes that they're fighting for. And it, it's like this, this is a complete luxury in a sea of endless TV shows that frenetically leap from one scene to the next, letting like the, and, and 12 monkeys like lets the characters and us by proxy soak in the bubbles of goodness of character building and this, and, and it drives this real emotional investment in these characters and their actions. And it, it also helps to fully flesh out the plot. So I love how, I love how these scenes are just like, like lets us just sit there and watch and doesn't rush through this stuff to get to the next commercial break or to get to the smash to black cliffhanger at the end of, of an episode. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a pleasure and a luxury to just watch these things unfold. And 12 monkeys probably does this better than anything else on TV where everything is like, get to the next cool thing that's happening. And 12 monkeys is like, slow your roll dudes. We got plenty of cool ass <laughs> shit. Wait till we even show you the splinter suits. Jen's going to fucking lose her mind over those. But there's plenty <laughs> of fucking cool shit that we're going to get to in action. But we got to let you know where everybody's coming from. And we got to seed each of these scenes with little clues that's going to be very, very important later on. So fucking awesome kudos to the writers for doing this. Um, the other thing I wanted to, to talk about and to get your guys' input in is like, do you think Jones's room is where we get some of the most insightful and intimate moments with her, especially early on in the series? Like even when Ramsey's rifling through her stuff, like the dirty boy that he is, he, she's, she's humanized by what she owns and not always by her outward expression of emotions. It, but, and then you kind of juxtaposition that like, why does she have, a collection of photographs of her failed experiments. <laughs> like, it's such a weird serial killer trophy-esque thing. That was the first thing my mind leaped to. But then I'm like, is it maybe her hall of shame? It, it just, I just, I don't know how to, I, I love how her shit humanizes her and the, the, the art that she has and her appreciation for the, the, 
the things that humanity has built. But I'm also like, freaky deaky, why do you have these Polaroids of, of men <sighs> getting turned inside out? What is your dealio? I mean, I guess, I, I mean, though, she's a scientist. And so she's recording her observations, both writing. Yeah, but down, shouldn't that be in a, them. shouldn't that be a file in the, in the little, in the, in the, um, what do we call the room that's off the, uh, the splinter room? We're with the whiteboard and all the... That's like the, con- the, the situation room. where yeah. The si- like yeah, the situation room. <laughs> like, why isn't that in a, a file in the situation room? Why is, why is that in her little... Her, her li- what Was it in her chest of, of stuff? I think that Jones's room is kind of like a metaphor for Jones herself in that you have to get through a door to see anything that she didn't want you to see. There's a barrier there. And... I I like the point that you brought up. I absolutely think it's her hall of shame. I think that what Jones uses those photos for, she probably, like, I can see her sitting around, like, looking through them after certain, you know, certain moments. I think that as much as those particular men were not necessarily important to her personally, Mm -hmm. it is something, though, that drives her mission because, like, why do we have to keep going? Why do we have to keep doing this? Because look at everything I've already done. Hmm. Yeah, it's like she's she's kind of pot committed, you know, at that point after 30 failed experiments, you just don't go, well, that's not working out. And let's move to the next idea. Yeah, exactly. You you have to you have to go. I mean, she's all in at that point. I just wanted to acknowledge that your read on it that her room is a metaphor for her. Like, you could just drop the mic and go. (laughs) That was later. That was just like, dude. My mind, it's blown. Yeah. I mean, the other, I mean, Jones is also just, she's such, it starts here that you realize, like, she's, I mean, obviously she's a brilliant scientist, but she's also, like, a Renaissance woman, right? Like, she's a scientist that, you know, is obviously, like, probably one of the most brilliant scientists of her generation, but she's also someone who we will hear from her throughout the series reading literature like in some monologues um or voiceovers um throughout the series you know she's got paintings hanging in her room she knows composers so i mean so it just gives you so much insight that there's so much to this woman and wondering what she was like back before all of this happened and that's just sort of like the set decoration and also just the camera lingering on showing us that object all of those objects because the juxtaposition between those five those photographs of men like writhing in pain and a baby blanket and a jewelry box with Mm -hmm. the ballerina going around like it's quite a contrast, and it's a hint at just how complex she is, uh, like wonderfully complex, right? I mean, that's why we love her, because she's a female character that's allowed to be that complex. But they do that, it's, you know, they use those objects, and it's a shorthand, it tells us so much. If I may also extend my room metaphor. Oh, here we go, going in deep. <laughs> I think it's also indicative of how compartmentalized she is. Ah, okay, yeah. So each of those things is in their own little sections Uh because that's just how Jones operates. Yeah, she just files them away where they need to go. They don't necessarily cross over into one another. That's, that's, beep, you get like, you get like an A plus for the day. (laughs) Thank you. I think it's interesting that, I I, I do believe that, that Barbara was still just a guest star in season one. She wasn't a series regular. And 
that they invested so much in her so early. I, I don't know if they had always intended to make her a series regular later on and make her more of a an integral part to uh, uh, Team Splinter, especially in away missions. I don't know what they're called. Like, sorry to use tricky language, but when <laughs> she goes time traveling with those guys, mm-hmm. that's like, that's the best. In case the, the listeners, I want to call you guys readers, because um, <laughs> another podcast I listen to calls, calls listeners readers for whatever reason. But in case the listeners didn't listen to the first episode, and shame on you, you should have, <laughs> um, I revealed that Jones was my favorite character. So that's why, like, every single time Jones does something or says something, I'm completely 1,000% invested. Um, and I just, I, I rewatched her speech over and over again to Ramsey talking about, you know, the, the, you know, all the things that humanity has created when we wouldn't just be losing, uh, we wouldn't just be losing people. We'd be losing all the art. We'd be adrift on the ocean of time with no beginning or end. I was like, I rewound it and kept watching it and started crying because I'm a dork. Well, I think too, that some of those things and, and not to diminish Jones or how much she cares about, uh, you know, everything. She really has a huge heart. But I think that those reminders of civilization are in some ways more important to Jones than this obscure vision of 7 billion people. Yeah. It's because this is what they created. Like, she's talking about creation and ideas and, you know, just so much outside of just, like, meat and bodies. Yeah, I think it's also, I think that also extends to the idea that one versus seven billion and this amorphous seven billion, you know, this faceless glob of people versus one. But it's very important to distinguish who the one is. Mm -hmm. It's not important if it's your one, but it's important if it's my one. Yep. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's the stance that, that everyone seems to take at different times in the show, especially, you know, most pointedly with Ramsey, who does the biggest kind of philosophical switch when he finds out he has his boy. <laughs> yeah, but then I'm sorry, I think you mean <clears throat> my son. Oh, man. <laughs> but, he, but, he, but he switches. <laughs> I mean, what I, what I like about, what I like about this all you know i love shows that have these kinds of moral dilemmas right it's like my favorite thing to watch but what what i what i tend to enjoy the more is when they acknowledge how much these moral decisions are not simply like thought experiments but mm-hmm. how much human emotion drives your morality um what it's what makes you like what outcome makes you feel good who does it benefit is it does it protect someone that you love i mean those and those are all like that i'm not saying that like in a like a derogatory way i think that's just acknowledging that we're human beings and so when we make these moral decisions we can't pretend that they don't that emotion isn't a component of that and when they put the characters like through these like the ringer and they're constantly flipping the script on them and saying, okay, well, if that was your viewpoint, how about now it's your son? How about now it's your daughter, right? How about now it's like your person and watching what people do. I don't know. Is there a single character on the show over the course of the four seasons that doesn't choose the person that they love the most? Jennifer. (sighs) 
Jennifer doesn't? Je- I think that might be true, that Jennifer Jennifer has a little bit of a higher purpose, maybe. Well, but if Jennifer is not put... It's interesting because Jennifer has a lot of people that are important to her. We will get to a moment in this episode where she chooses coal mm-hmm. over 7 billion people and a plague, right? But I don't feel like Jennifer is personally put in the same kind of difficult position that Jones with respect to Hannah or Ramsey with respect to his son or Cassie and Cole with respect to each other or their son. I don't I don't feel like she's put in quite the same moral like Deacon and everybody daughters though. I mean I don't think you can say she doesn't have those kind of stakes. No she but doesn't she, have one. She has like twenty. But when does she like Yeah, I don't I don't feel that she has no, but I, I don't, and I don't mean deep stakes. Yeah, I'm not, and I'm not meaning to make this about like blood family versus found family. I'm just saying like I don't know if Jennifer is ever put in the position of having to like affirmatively choose to sacrifice twenty people for seven billion. Like they take risks, right? Like when she leads them across, um, basically like the country, right? Because <laughs> Titans yeah. like in Colorado. Um, but I, I mean, we I I don't know if I can answer this like right off the top of my head, but it's something interesting to think about. Like. Are there is there any character at any point that makes that? I think most people would say that that's more. What's the right word? More noble or selfless to sacrifice the person you love. On the other hand, it's interesting because I find a lot of times when we watch these shows, and someone does betray someone that's close to them, the audience also has a gut reaction against that. Um, which you know is it's is, weird, right? Well, I mean, it makes. I sense, mean, it's right? not our stakes. It's not our stakes, and it's like utilitarianism in practice doesn't take into a, like utilitarianism as this ideal. You can hold it at an arm's length and admire it, but there's you can't once you start personalizing the the one versus the many type thing. Every, that whole structure of morality just kind of falls apart because. You can't. When you look it, at it in the so theoretical personal. sense, the only thing you've done is quantify it. When you exactly. start to qualify mm-hmm. it, it gets ugly. Yep. Yeah, it gets ugly fast, and that's the. I think that's the arm's length thing that sometimes the audience has as well. Mm-hmm. Is that we can't? Yeah, utilitarianism. It seems like it's a noble ideal, the 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 greatest good for the greatest number. But then in practice, when we see somebody do it and sacrifice somebody they love, it's immediately like, no, we didn't mean do it that way. (laughs) Well, yeah, and also can come, I mean, you may, it may be like the greatest good for the greatest number of people, but then there are other ideals that can come into conflict with that. Like in in this episode, when if you look at what Jones did with her experiments from a utilitarian standpoint, Okay, so it was like five, seven, ten test subjects. Those are t- maybe ten men who lost their lives. And, and if you're going to look at it from a utilitarian standpoint, like, okay, we'll bet you are trying to save seven billion people. But there's all kinds of other ways to look at what she did. So are there some means that are not acceptable to us, like the kind of physical torture that they were going through, right? Like, which are lines that we draw all the time in real life, right? Like, mm-hmm. if experimenting on humans could result in a cure for cancer, 
we don't say yes experiment on humans, right? <laughs> Unless it's gone through like many, 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 many layers where we know it's going to be hopefully safe for people by the time mm-hmm. you're experimenting. But also, I mean, one thing I thought was interesting that's kind of like folded into this is that it'd be what it, it's not clear to me. In fact, I think I'm going to draw the conclusion from what we've seen that the people who participated in these experiments didn't know the potential of what would happen to them. Because Cole doesn't seem to under, right? Later on in the series, Cole doesn't seem to understand like what's happening to his body. And she mm-hmm. kind of explains it later. So I think, for example, if, if, if Jones had gone to all of these people who were the time tra- attempted time travelers before Cole and said, look, what could happen is your body gets turned inside out. <laughs> and they then enter into that experiment, consenting to that, like of their own free will, knowing the stakes. Then I think that that's a very different moral question than withholding that from them. And they don't know that. And then it happens. I never got the impression they consented to anything. <laughs> Yeah, I I she was just like plucking him out of the like off the property, you know. <laughs> yeah, so I mean that's just another wrinkle to that goes that you just kind of then add that to the utilitarian dilemma. Like, is it okay to do that even if it will result in the greater good? Well, this does kind of beg the question. Now that we know in paradox that Jones had already met Cole and knew that. You know, it was the one, he was the one that it worked with. Why is she doing this at all? Oh, man. That's right. What if she had it to uh, well, maybe, perfect yeah. it? Yeah. I mean. I mean, the other thing that I thought about, too, looking at all those photographs, is what we learn in, um, it's the beginning part one, that she was like, you know, the early version of the serum was created from her DNA. Right. Mm-hmm. So the reason why it works for Cole <laughs> is because it's her grandson. <laughs> like, right. So um, feels, feels, feel, feels alarm, feels alarm. <laughs> <laughs> so we're looking at all those photographs now. And now, like, we know the reason why that happened is because I, I guess the conclusion to draw is that the serum wasn't compatible with their DNA. And obviously she adjusts it later on in the series so that other people can use it. The other thing, beep to what you mentioned, that, that Jones now knows that she will save Cole. When Ramsey says to her, you know, it kind of gets at what Ramsey's worried about. I mean, I guess this is like another added layer to the conversation because Ramsey's taking this like moral stance. It's not right. But what's also motivating him is that he's worried that this is going to happen to his friend. Right. It's killing him. It's killing Cole. So at the end of the conversation, like, how do you know that this isn't going to happen to Cole? And Jones says, I won't let that happen. It both reveals the emotional motivation on Ramsey's part as to why he's so upset. But also, it's fascinating now because when Jones says that, she knows that not only is it going to affect Cole's health, but she knows that she actually will be the one to save him. Right. So it sounds like a promise, but it's a promise that she already knows what the outcome is. That she's she will make good on what she's telling Ramsey because she are, she knows that she already did it. Yeah, and she will definitely save him in 2015. While um, I don't know, Hannah's standing across the street or whatever. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it! 
<laughs> Beep is just like, let me drop this little feels bomb. <laughs> I was like, oh yeah, and then wait, shit. I was like, yeah, I was like, can she really be quiet after that? Okay. Wow. And she was like, it took Beep a minute. Just like casually strolled by your house and threw a grenade at That's it. what he call it, a feels grenade. And she just freaking launches them and then walks away. And it took that one took, and that one like hit me in slow motion as I had to think about it. <laughs> Okay, so it is time to go to the actual night room. The episode opens up with, we don't know it yet, but we're actually meeting Olivia uh, um, as she's brought in with Jennifer (laughs) together (laughs) into the night room because Olivia is in a box. So how we first meet her is Olivia in a box. Looking looking hot. Yeah looking great and it's great because already the show is calling back like to itself and you're getting a clue that the things that jennifer says even if they sound what does the pallet man say you have to cut through all the noise Mm -hmm. in 102 when she said to cole oh the night room you know complete with evening stars we learn in that opening scene when she's talking to the other scientist that what she was referring to are the big burn mechanisms on the ceiling that are lit up with bright lights. So it's kind of fun. It's Do these rooms and that functionality exist in the world? Oh, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> Where you have to you have to throw two switches, but one's actually in the room, so you get toastied. You <laughs> yeah, I feel like you wouldn't get to make that decision. Like someone would just be up there and be like, "You're expendable later." <laughs> Catch you on the flip side. <laughs> I mean, if you have if you have a mechanism that can light a room on fire at what eighteen hundred degrees, then I sure hope there are two buttons. <laughs> because yeah, that would be bad. <laughs> what if you like accidentally put your coffee mug down on it? You're like the the supervisor and the night shift for the night room. People are like down there working on stuff. They're like, oh, I'll put my coffee down. Oops. Sorry, guys. <laughs> it got some fired, huh? Um, <laughs> Literally. <laughs> somebody is. So, you know, that opening scene kind of lays out on rewatch. You realize they're telling the audience all the things we need to know um, for what is going to end up unfolding, um, what the security protocols are and what button controls what. And you get a lot of information that you realize on rewatch is actually important in that opening scene. Can we just is this a scene with this is with Jennifer, right? Yep. Can we just acknowledge that her <laughs> 1970s wireframe serial killer glasses It's not her is best look. look. It's not her I'm best look. <laughs> debatable. I'm sorry. <laughs> it is quintessentially Jennifer Goines, though. I mean, come on. Wait, am I am I remembering I is that an homage to the film? Doesn't doesn't Brad Pitt wear glasses like that, like in the dinner scene? The, like the fancy dinner part. Am I remembering that right? I don't know. I, it's been like oh, 20 man, years since remember. I've watched the film. But yeah, so you have you have an opening scene. Um, it gives us, we, it, it is introducing us to the witness, even though we don't know it. And she, um, we get a lot of information about sort of the, the security protocols that are all going to play, obviously, an important role for the plot of the episode. Um, we then, and we're just sort of following all of the like now night room related plot. Um, so the next scene is Cassie and Cole in the car. Now, if it's going to like... <laughs> 
just like feels disclaimer, but in one minute more. <laughs> oh, Jesus I know. Christ. I'm sorry, but I'm just going to say that now, like for your comfort, anytime I bring up that episode. Uh, <laughs> it's a trigger, trigger alert. <laughs> we will see Cassie and Cole sitting in the car outside the facility again, although it will be three years later, um, in one minute more. And so there's just a lot of ironies not I don't know if irony is the right word but there's the two of them in the car having this conversation about how if they can just do this it's going to end everything and it's going to reset and that's why Cole is so like as Cassie will call him in season two Johnny Nightroom (laughs) like we're just going to go in uh, and like go after it (laughs) but there's a lot of it's really interesting now when you think about one minute more where the like you just want a head desk because they're like if we could just get it then we're gonna end it and like save everything and then you think about one minute more and you're like fuck but you're the ones that are gonna go to the same place <laughs> at the end of the show and get the file and you're the ones that are gonna drop it in the airport like fuck um so there's just a lot of like the, <laughs> I think I, you know you just summed it up there it, there's a lot period <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot. Yeah, there's a lot. But there's a lot of visuals, too. So Cassie and Cole in the hallway with the flashlights, you know, and they they just do they do that again. One minute more. And so it was fun, like watching, you know, one minute more actually cuts back to scenes like flashback scenes to the Nightroom episode. But just the way they recreated it with the set and then them in the hallway and sitting in the car outside and all of that. And of course the pallid man silhouette in the background, like they're walking through this building and the pallid man in this episode, they're walking through the building and the pallid man already knows they're there. And in one minute more, they're walking through the building again and the pallid man knows they're there. (laughs) So it's just like, God, he just always fucking knows they're there. That dude. (laughs) So should we talk about, this is a big Pallid Man episode, and I found it as creepy and terrifying and disturbing as I found him the first time I watched. There's a lot of, (sighs) do you just need to get out? This guy, do you need to get out of the creepiness? Because there's actually, I find, a lot of interesting nuance to him now that we know so much more about the motivations of the Army of the Twelve Monkeys to this episode. But do you want to just get your feels out about how fucking creepy he is? Well, I mean, this this motherfucker, <laughs> he's so creepy and it's it's effort, you know, it's just effortless too. And I feel like if he wasn't so goddamn creepy, he'd be like offering you a, a Werther's candy. <laughs> like he's your, he's like, he could be, in one moment, he could be your grandpa. Just like, oh, it's Papa. Oh, wait a minute. He's torturing Cole. Like, there's something so effortless about how evil he is, and he does it so genially. Like, he, he'll smile while he's torturing Cole, and he's just so matter-of-fact about everything. that I, I just, I love the way that uh, the actor's name... Tom, is it Tom Noonan? I think so. I think the first name is Tom, but I just love the choices that he makes, and I don't know. I don't know if it was a lot of direction from the writers as far as how to play this dude, but he's just so spot on. Oh yeah, like when he's torturing Cole and they get interrupted, and he's like, "Oh, oh, I have to go." It's like someone interrupted him having <laughs> coffee, <laughs> and not that he's like putting. 
putting fucking bamboo through Cole's fingers, which like, right? He's just like, oh God, like, sorry to interrupt our coffee. I have to get back to work. Like, <laughs> oh golly. I mean, uh, he's, he's so great. And, I, and, and you, you have in the, the run sheet talking about he's a man of faith. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it's in, you said you said just there's something you said just now that jumped out at me that you said he's evil. And I don't know if I agree with that anymore now that we've come to the end of the show, because if you even some of the things that he says in this episode, like so when he gets to the vault and he's like putting his mm-hmm. hands on it like reverently and he's talking to the employee that he's about to kill that we're going to now, quote, set things right. Uh-oh. Guys. Is Emmett? There's, there's, is, is Emmett there's joining dogs, There's dogs outside barking, so they just woke up and started running. So be careful. <laughs> be aware. I love it. This is now like you're building the tension in this podcast. <laughs> so... <laughs> So when he says he's going to when he says he's going to set things right. So we were just like so let let me let me try and like frame it and then you can totally like try and you can totally tear it. Cuz I know I'm going to I'm going to end up agreeing with you cuz I think evil is maybe a strong word for what he is. So he so if you're the pal- now that we know everything that we know. He believes that all human suffering is related to the passage of time mm-hmm. and losing people that we love and ultimately dying. And that time is the enemy of humanity and of human happiness. And so that if he can achieve his goal, he can make, you know, it's his, if you just, it, like, I'm not saying like I agree with it, but just if you're in his head and his worldview, whatever he's doing now, whoever he hurts, whoever he kills, it's it's another the few versus the many dilemma, but just from an opposing side, right? Like if Jones believes she can save 7 billion by torturing or by like experimenting and killing 10, let's say 10 men, he Mm -hmm. believes he can achieve a greater state of human happiness. And even if he kills this person or the other person, like all of that's going to go away because people who die and people who are living are all going to exist together in one perfect moment. So whatever he does now you know, like even, for example, like the employee that he kills, he, I mean, he's he's almost cheerful about it. But it's interesting because he is weirdly merciful in how he goes about doing it. Like instead of just like shooting the guy in the head and being like, whatever, he like tells the guy to close his eyes, tells him to picture his wife, which now is such an eerie, like connected to his father, you know, played by Christopher Lloyd Shaw, mm-hmm. talking about how he just wants to be with his wife again. Um, and he almost looks moved when the man talks about, I just want to see my wife again. Um, so I think that you can, there's a way that you can look at the pallid man that if you accept in his mind, what he's doing is no different than what Jones is doing in her mind, because he Mm -hmm. believes he's going to achieve greater happiness. There's a certain level of sociopathy being presented though. Yeah, there is. Well, right, and I mean, he's been raised, and, you know, we see later he's been raised in a way with, like, very little human connection, and it's super fucked up. (laughs) So, right, like, you know, even when his, like, even when his father died, right, right in front of him, like, his father was totally willing, like, just willing to accept that for the cause. Like, it's hard, like, it's kind of, that scene's actually kind of hard to watch, you know, when Agent Gale kills his dad. But I just... 
I, you know, I'm not, I am not on the side of the Red Forest and I'm not, but just to play like devil's advocate, I just watching this episode now, knowing what we know about their faith and their goals. When I originally watched it, I thought it was just this like bunch of assholes that want to release a plague. Um, And now we know that they actually have what they think is like a principled reason for why they're doing what they're doing, which actually comes pretty freaking close to convincing or some people believe did convince Mm -hmm. one of our heroes of the show is the right outcome. I I wonder though, if he has an inflated sense of self-importance, like he's, he's like a merciful God almost because he's, he's, he's not overtly political, but we see in later episodes that he's totally gunning for Olivia's position. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. So I just feel like this guy thinks he's maybe one step below the witness and he will be exalted as the witness's right-hand man, so to speak. So I guess I guess that's what I kind of view as quote-unquote evil is his, I don't know, it's... I think it's human, though. Like all of, whether it's Olivia or the pallid man, I think why they are such good antagonists is... It's fascinating to watch them jockeying back and forth and, and, and feeling like jealous or that they're not appreciated or why does this person have this role that I don't or why didn't this work out the way I thought it was going to be and having a crisis of faith because they're just mm-hmm. as human and complex as – I mean maybe we don't spend as much time with them and they – I don't know, because of maybe their – cults they don't have the same kind of like personal relationships that our heroes do but i you know like it's real it to me he's still human and complex because he does have those more like petty motivations like i want to be the one in charge i don't know i, I kind of landing on beep's side of this with the sociopath uh, sociopath oh yeah no for sure i'm not like i don't want to be bffs <laughs> with the pallid man like at all <laughs> i'm just well i thought you were jockeying <laughs> to be the witness there you're like really convincing you're like i'm not on the red forest side but secretly i am though no i um i i, I mean these are good points these, you know, these are these i just are good am points. seeing it from their i'm trying to see it from their point of view <laughs> <laughs> You are so you are so nice almost to a fault. He's basically embraced the fact that no matter how many people they need to kill, he's fine with that based on what they're working toward. And he but he calls Cole but he calls Cole out in this episode where he says, you know, Cole's like, I just want to chat with the witness. And he's like, well, you don't want to chat. Like, you don't chat. What you do is you put you put a bullet in people, right? And so our protagonists are who we're rooting for are going to be constantly like killing people and confronting like right so like in some ways if you're taking issue with their means it's really uh, both people on opposite side of this war are using means that we probably in other situations would disagree with or be uncomfortable with but it's just a matter of like which end do you agree with yeah i don't have a problem with his means i have a problem with his demeanor <laughs> <laughs> right i mean we're gonna have later I get, that. I get that we're gonna have later on this season you're gonna have cole beating the shit out of aaron marker and torturing him to try and get mm-hmm. information out of him and the pallid man is torturing cole in this episode right yeah one seems to delight in it a little more than the other <laughs> Right, one person 
person does seem to enjoy it or maybe more than the other. Although, yeah, one no, I mean, it. well, hold on, though. I, I'm going to like, I, I think there's a part of Cole that enjoyed being the crap out of the person who's responsible for his father's death. So maybe he does, he wasn't, he's, Cole isn't like cheerful when he tortures people. <laughs> but yeah. Um, anyway, so that was my, I don't like, I'm not like a fan of the Red Forest, nor do I, am I like, agree with the Pallid Man. I just was kind of trying to make a case for, from his point of view, why he's not the bad guy. You're such a good defense lawyer. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I did, was, I was wondering, so when Cole and Cassie are brought into... The, when they're captured and they're brought into the room. And I love Cole's, like, when they're tying his hand down, he's like, oh, that's not good. <laughs> like, just the, like... <laughs> but when when the pallid man walks in, he's so, he's so delighted to see the two of them. <laughs> it's like bumping into, like, two old friends that you're so excited to see. And I wondered, I mean, I don't know if this was the idea that they knew in the show at the time, but... Is, is this like seeing like Mary and Joseph for him? <laughs> it's like he thinks this is the mother and father of the witness. And then they have this insane conversation where it is the first time in the show we've seen the witness now appear with the plague mask in two different visions with Jennifer so far, Jennifer drinking the tea and when Cole's hallucinating in Atari. But this is the first time we hear a character say out loud when he says ask him and Cassie's like who do you mean God and he's just like no the witness and there's a lot of layers to that to unpack so like first of all it's hilarious because it's not a him it's a her and then they're having this conversation about the witness and like as the audience you're like whoa what is this shit about (laughs) like who is this witness person (laughs) like we thought we were just dealing with a plague right what is this shit what is this shit but then on rewatch, when you're so the the thing that trips me up a little bit is when th- we know that they have the word of the witness as of this point because they had it in 1989, and so when Olivia, I can't remember, is it a is it Olivia that goes into the in season two, the House of Cedar and Pine is like, why don't we just kill Cassie? And the witness mm-hmm. writes, no, 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 no. So yeah, I think it's her. So I'm a little unclear. <clears throat> like they have. They have the word of the witness. They know that James and Cassie, they know James and Cassandra, like they know they go to the house of Cedar Pine and they know that the eighth and Cole is them born. Like all that's on there, right? But regardless of whether he, the pallid man in that moment knows, we as the audience on rewatch know that they're having a conversation about this, the witness who the pallid man for a very long time is going to believe to be their son, and they're going to think it's their son. So when Cole is like, well, who is this asshole? Like, and who can I talk to him? <laughs> You're like, wow, this is like, at one point, everyone in this room is going to think that it is Cassie and Cole's son. And then when they're like, well, why don't we just go ask him? Uh, I think when Cole says that, the witness is in the fucking building, in the vault, right? And it's his sister. And there's just all of these like really fun things like layers to this conversation now even though like on original watch it still was kind of a momentous conversation because it was a signal to the audience like who the fuck is the witness and what is this all about so that was my spiral when i watched the scene so the biggest mind fuck in this conversation between cassie cole and the pallid man is the pallid man says cassie says you're insane And he says, insanity and rationality may be on opposite sides of the animal, 
But lately, Doctor, the snake is eating its own <laughs> tail. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> oh my god! What the fuck? <laughs> So obviously we're freaking out because of all like how season three ends and all of season four with the like basically the riddle and the story and the serpent eating its own tail and what the fuck. <laughs> do you guys have what any Ouroboros? Do you guys have anything else to add other than what the fuck <laughs> that that line think, is in the fifth episode of this? Season? No, I think you I think you summed it up perfectly. <laughs> so that just sort of to shift to the other. The other thing that this conversation brings up is we had talked about in our last podcast about how Cole basically has two lies of omission going into this episode. Um, he understandably doesn't tell Jennifer that he was the one that killed her father, and he doesn't tell Cassie that he was the one that killed Henri. And the pallid man lets both of those cats out of the bags um, to both Cassie in this <laughs> conversation and later to Jennifer and results in quite different reactions <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> so <laughs> so i wanted to take cassie's reaction first and then we'll go we'll go to the next conversation with jennifer but i really particularly on rewatch and thinking about the end of the series and, and sort of cole's arc this is like a really I think it's a really important scene. It's almost like Cole, it's almost like a monologue for, for a bit of it, where Cole's explaining sort of, they tr- he and Ramsey tried to have rules for each other and then, you know, only in, only in self-defense and then only for food. And those kind of started slipping away, like getting chipped away at by their circumstances. Little scope creep. <laughs> <laughs> and then he paints this like pretty... Uh, awful scene where he is killing like an old couple um, and even the way he phrases it like the old man didn't really put up a fight but the woman did and when he talks about the moment that even as the woman is dying she smiles at him and forgives him and he realizes that that is what he wants I think it's just a really foundational scene for this character because that's like the whole series arc is Cole struggling with who he is, um, trying to do better and trying to make up for the things that he has done in the past and seeking redemption, which, you know, as he's talking about this scene, I'm now thinking of, you know, the final splinter when he's making that great act of self-sacrifice. But I thought it was interesting also because he said, you know, he wants forgiveness, even though he knows that it's not something he deserves. Which made me think of, so there's that line from Buffy where Guile says to forgive is an act of compassion. It's not done because people deserve it. It's done because they need it. I just, this whole, the way he talks about wanting forgiveness and trying to seek that out and also made me think of the early season three conversation between Cole and future asshole where he's saying... Where, where he says, you're going to have to learn to forgive yourself. So it's really sort of the first, we got some hints in the last episode in Atari that this is something, but, you know, it's Cole stating what, he, what he's striving for, what he's always chasing is to fix it, to, to if he can just fix what happened with this plague, then it will somehow go toward making up for all of the things that he did because of it. And Cassie's response but, to but, him. But, but, yeah. but. Time out, time out. Yeah, yeah. It will erase everything he did, too. 
Yeah. But actually, it's interesting. That's, the show. I mean, the show plays with this idea through Jones throughout the series of even if things are erased from a moral standpoint, you still did them. Like, do you remember when she talks about when they're going to, like, for example, when they're in season three going in to kill child Ethan? And she's like, we're going to kill a child. And even if everything's like reset, we still did this. Yeah. So it is, it's, it is interesting, you know, and ultimately, I guess that question um, will depend in part on whether you think there's anything out there that's like judging you other than like what happened. But in this story, people remember, even when things are reset, some people remember what they did. <laughs> so... Jones made the comment in that context that she was glad that no one would ever know what they did if they succeeded in saving the world. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that has that a lot of different meanings. Mm-hmm. But yeah. I mean, just because, actually, I mean, th- but isn't that almost like more noble? Because Cole is doing something for forgiveness that he's not even going to have the benefit of, like, enjoying that forgiveness? Or you mean because it'll be white, all wiped clean, it will wipe well, clean what he is- did? Everything will be wiped clean. So the bad stuff will be wiped clean and the, the, the forgiveness he gets will be wiped clean. I mean, it'll be back to a null state. Mm-hmm. There's nothing to feel bad about and there's nothing to forgive. It's just all washed away. But, I, but that's true. But even if you were making, even the choices he's making right now feel better than the choices he's making before because he's striving toward what he thinks is a more noble goal than just like when he was like living to survive with the West seven, if that makes yeah. sense. But he's still having to do the, some of the things mm-hmm. he's done in the past with the West seven. So the lessons learned and I guess the skills learned with the West seven, he's putting them to use. Yeah. Now, good use, good being a word that you can interpret many different ways, that's up for debate. Right, not just for himself, like he's doing it right. Like if he was killing people with the West Seven, then he was doing it for himself, and but but now he's <laughs> he's still killing people, but he's doing it to try and save seven billion. Um, yeah. But Cassie's re- one of the other. What I think is sort of fascinating is Cassie in this scene. Oh, Cassie. Holy shit. Knowing where she's, her head's going to be at in season two, where she's like, you're willing to do what ne- needs to be done, and I'm not. I mean, she's basically going to say the same, like the fucking opposite of that in episode two of season two, where she's like, you're not willing to do the things that need to be done, and I am, right? She's going to say the total opposite of it. And then the idea that she's saying, I just want to heal people. <laughs> she's ah like right like oh my god she's, i mean that is so that is so seasonal one cassie and I, I, I mean oh cassie you beautiful naive sophisticated newborn baby <laughs> sweet summer child <laughs> she's the Anne. she's the ann perkins <laughs> of 12 monkeys leslie would love her leslie would, <laughs> leslie would not love season two cassie no she would not be making binders for her The healing part actually ties back to Cassie's final monologue when she is doing the journal and the voiceover and the epilogue. She specifically says, once in another lifetime, we save 7 billion. But in this time, this life, I'm happy saving one at a time. So it actually turned out that she did get to go back to that and she did get to embrace that dream of just wanting to heal people. Mm -hmm. Which is what he, you know... 
I, I think I remember through my like broken sobbing when they're saying goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> Um, when they're doing their final goodbye you know actually like the last time that the two characters actually speak to each other in the show he's like you can go back to being a doctor right like you can go back to being that Um, which is what she is so like is the identity she's clinging to right now yeah (laughs) so that conversation just sets up so much with the two of them and this whole theme of forgiveness and self-forgiveness that it's just really, it's a lot to watch now knowing sort of what their their journeys are going to be. It may be splitting hairs here, but I would say that Cole's arc is more about atonement than it is about forgiveness. Because even though he realizes that something he wants, he definitely knows or, you know, has determined that it's not something he deserves from his own mindset. So I think there is that distinction. Mm. To fi- because he's focused on fixing it. Yeah, he's trying to make up for what he's done. You know what I mean? It's all about kind of setting things back to zero sum rather than a sense of redemption. Mm-hmm. And, and if you think about it, like all the attempts to eradicate the virus and reset the timeline keep ending up in failure. And he keeps having to do really awful things. So every single attempt is like, fuck, if I fuck this up again, what am I going to do this time to fuck my own psyche up a little bit more? Uh, Like, what parts of myself am I going to have to compromise again? Mm -hmm. Right. Only to have this result in failure. Like, what personally do I have to do in order to reset time and stop this from happening? I mean, it's a lot on Cole. Yeah. It's a fucking lot. Yeah, and his his journey is so... Like, when you step back and look at it, like, right here, he, like, in season one, he is, for the most part, until the end, until he goes back and rescues Ramsey, like, he's willing, for the most part, to do whatever it takes to achieve this goal, right? And then season two, because of his experiences in our time, he is trying to basically find like his whole arc in season two is trying to find a better way, like not killing, saying that the only time that we made a difference is when we saved someone. And then he gets like hit by a Mack truck with the idea that it's his son who's the witness. And it brings up all of this like self-hatred and thinking that he's a bad person because he thinks, well, if Athens, if Athens the witness, then it's it's it came from me. And I think at mm-hmm. one point he even tells Jennifer, like, I just want it to be over, right? Like, I just want to get this done so that it can be over, meaning, like, his life, like, over, done. And then, you know, and it eventually comes back around to season four where he is, you know, I find very movingly, like, accepting of his fate and willing to sacrifice himself and, like, his very existence and being remembered by anyone who loved him and do that. And so it is a really... There's a lot on him, and it's a really – I find it to be, like, a really moving journey. Like, if Jennifer's journey is about finding your self-worth, Cole's journey is about, like, forgiving yourself, right? And, like, self-forgiveness is hard. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's a lot. There's a lot in there. Okay. So I think that takes us to 
Jennifer. Jennifer. <laughs> so Beep, I know I, I don't want to, I want to let you talk about Jennifer because <laughs> she's your favorite person. I think there's a lot of really interesting stuff in this episode with Jennifer uh, regarding her constantly talking about eyes. I think it actually leads us to believe where it starts to point towards Cole as being the origin because she keeps talking about his eyes and then the eyes of the corpse and like mm-hmm. her referring to him as otter eyes, but then saying to the corpse, you know, don't let it see me. Mm-hmm. And of course, she also steals the pallid man's medallion. Of tiny penis man. <laughs> Well, now when you watch, I mean, that's the first time we, I think so far that we've like gotten a close up of that, of the Titan symbol. And now every time I'm going to think of a tiny penis man. (laughs) Wait, that's what you think the Titan symbol looks like? Isn't it? Oh man, I like the Titan symbol. I don't think it's that. Jennifer called it. She drew, she drew a dick, Jen. It's not my fault. Oh man, now I can't even, uh. Well, that, not getting a tattoo of that, I guess. <laughs> Fuck. So there are some phenomenal, like, we, we can get into, like, what this, there's, I think there's two things, actually three things. Like, Jennifer has some hilarious comedic moments. We learn some important, although maybe we didn't realize it at the time, insight about sort of primaries and how the voices work. And number three, like some interesting (laughs) character development, character relationship stuff with with Jennifer. And then also she's meeting Cassie for the first time. Yay, our babies meet for the first time and it's awesome. (laughs) <laughs> um her she has some hilarious like she has the face meltdown line from raiders of the lost ark which fucking <laughs> cracks me up which can i just say as a total aside because i was re-watching the episode today preparing and we happened to watch raiders of the lost ark with our kids for the first time and i remember the face melting scene scaring the crap out of me as a kid like horrible my kids laughed because of the special effects. Yeah, the special effects are so bad in retrospect now. My son said, my seven-year-old son said, it looks like pumpkin pie. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> well, thanks for ruining Thanksgiving. <laughs> Jesus, you ruined Christmas. Now you ruined Thanksgiving. Let's cancel the rest of this year, I, I guess. I can't believe there's like, like now current generations of kids are not going to have like the living daylight scared out of them by that scene. It made me like both think better of my parenting decision of letting them watch it but also (laughs) (laughs) anyway so it just cracked me up that she referenced like I think this might be Jennifer's first film reference like is it like it's her first movie reference the the first of what will be many movie references from Jennifer referring to Raiders of the Lost Ark and her attention nightroom shoppers is (laughs) fucking hilarious and now oh it makes me think of the um, moment in Titan. It's sad that I think most of the people listening probably have never been in a Kmart ever. Do they even exist anymore? Oh my God, that's right. Yeah, because I used to shop at Kmart. Well, my mom used to take me to Kmart back back when I was a kid. I didn't actually go there. Oh my gosh, so is this, this is totally like, we know from that that it was probably somebody Gen X who wrote the episode. <laughs> Because, probably, yeah. <laughs> because it's probably a Gen X. I want to just let you guys, I'm just going to say, Cassie and Jennifer meet. Oh. Who's this bitch? And just <laughs> let you guys run with it. 
Oh my god. I I love I rewound this this moment several times because I love I guess the first couple of times I had watched, I guess I really was just into Jennifer in this this scene and this, this whole extended scene. Mm-hmm. But I rewatched this time and just was amazed at Cassie's reaction. Her wow. Because the mouthing wow. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I was like, just the, like her face just evolved in this look of just growing bewilderment and <laughs> amusement. And I'm like, welcome to our world, Dr. Rayleigh. This is exactly how the audience feels when we're watching. <laughs> <laughs> Jennifer going to just go off. And every, I mean, and every time Jennifer like <laughs> hugs Cole, it's like the most involuntary hug <laughs> that you've ever seen. He's just like standing there like, oh my God, <laughs> please stop. <laughs> um, so yeah, that I, is... I also like, the, um, I think Cole said something to the effect that, that he can trust, Ka- or that Jennifer can trust Kathy because she's Ka- I'm sorry Cassie because she's a doctor and I love I love this this line by Jennifer she says no more doctors always saying my name Jennifer Jennifer but never specifying which one I'm like <laughs> what I like mm-hmm. her like writing her dialogue must have been such a fucking trip mm-hmm. as a writer but like what does I, some of this does it mean something well like, it does I mean isn't it interesting to think I mean now. There are so many different Jennifers. There's old Jennifer, right? Yeah. And new, right? So I don't know if that was basically of referring to like her mania or is also super meta because we have so many different Jennifers. I mean, is it, it could it be talking to, does she think maybe the voices in her head are also Jennifers? I mean, I just don't. Right. And it's so great when Cole talks to her and we learn that the voices stop to listen when Cole talks. And it's so, it's not only interesting from like a mythology standpoint, right? So that all these voices in her head that we know now are the other primaries. When she finally meets with Cole, the voices stop because Cole is the key to everything, right? But it also is interesting in that it explains why Jennifer was so drawn to him, right? Like, when she talks to him, she actually has peace in her mind, right? Like, for a moment. Yeah, well, not non-drugged up peace, because we do see, we do see her at times, which I think is fascinating, that she, when she's on her meds, she's a semi-functioning adult with a STEM job. I mean, that was shocking to learn that she was a scientist mm-hmm. in in the Mark Ridge company. But yeah, I mean, I think it is it it is interesting, and I think I, I think you guys you'll probably explore what being on those drugs means to someone like Jennifer versus someone like you know just a regular human being in our world, and kind of the implications of that. I think that would be interesting to explore later on, but. Mm-hmm. I just, she's so fascinating a character because she does have these moments where you're just like, oh, it's Jennifer, normal everyday Jennifer with the turtle. This is weird. Okay, I will go on this journey. (laughs) Yep. I just, oh God, I love her character. I think Jennifer has to learn to listen to Jennifer as much as we do. Mm -hmm. A lot of these things we say, you know, I say all the time that if you listen to Jennifer from the beginning of the series, she tells the whole story. Mm -hmm. But I don't think she knows she's doing it. No, definitely not. Right. 
I don't think Jennifer knows what Jennifer thinks. So in a way, she's almost as put off by herself as we are. (laughs) (laughs) One of the questions is, how many Jennifers does she have in there? I mean, when you think about primaries and understanding the whole context of the timeline, Jennifer's all over the place. Yeah, she is all over the place. And she makes she seems to make interesting evolutions in each place she's she spends an extended period of time at. So these are different Jennifers. Mm-hmm. So this is very very meta, right? It's super, yeah. Because she, you don't know how much she's in touch with the different. You know, she can see time because she's a primary. So can she see those other versions of herself, right? But I, I mean, also, when she said that the voices stop when Cole talks, it also made me think, you know, kind of just thinking about this wider ranging mythology of the primaries. Also, the primaries stopped talking to Jennifer in season four when they knew Olivia was listening. Yeah. So this whole idea about like when the primaries are speaking to her and when they're not. And also my, my like random comedic moment that I loved was... When when the pallid man interrupts this conversation, it comes back. And he is like the most disappointed dad in the world. Where he's like, <laughs> it's like she did not clean up her room. He's like, Jennifer Goins. <laughs> and she's just like, oh, you're mad. Like, it's so <laughs> great. Oh, it's so good. Um, but the other thing that was interesting, which kind of, I mean, I guess it like expands out. But when she says, I only tell my secrets to Cole... The like, myth- like the reason and the mythology for that, and obviously she will eventually tell other people that she comes to trust that are kind of like on Team Splinter. But there's just a lot of really interesting mythology building, which it doesn't even have to do with the corpse and the origin of the virus, or even like in addition to hearing about the witness for the first time, but also the idea of that the voices are fixated on coal. There's just a lot of really like wonderful mythology building in this episode, in addition to like the crazy, you know, like cat and mouse game that's going on and like the whole like they think that the you know the, they think they're there and the pal man knows they're there and then the pal man catches them and then they think they've outsmarted the pal man but really they didn't and then they still able or find a way to like burn it all down all of that mythology and kind of like world building is going on and great character work while all of this crazy like people know more than you think you know going on like throughout the episode so there's like you know, we've spent most of it not even talking about the plot of what was going on <laughs> in the episode. She also quotes two presidential, like, first of all, she quotes Bill Clinton saying, Honest Abe, chopping down the cherry tree. And the cherry tree, <laughs> right? But the cherry tree thing never happened. <laughs> so that's a total folklore. And George Washington never said that. And then Bill Clinton saying, I did not have sexual relations with that woman, which we all know is a lie. And so she's quote like, <laughs> Oh, it's so good. <laughs> oh my God. So, so good. I love that she's just delighted that Cole killed her dad. Holy shit. <laughs> and the performance, like the way, like, I think she actually may rattle the pallid man a little bit, like screaming in his face, the way she just like raises her voice, like he killed my daddy, killed my daddy. Oh my God. It's so great. And so fucking crazy. You're like, <laughs> and you actually don't know at that point. Yeah. If she's pissed at Cole or not. 
So when she comes into the room and is like, he, you know, the pallid man told me what you did, you don't know which way that conversation is going to go. And then it's the most ridiculous thing ever where she says, that's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Jennifer Goins, I love her. So that was just kind of a random moment that it put me back to. And when the pallid man is talking to Cassie about how if you cut through all the noise, you know, Jennifer is always true to her word. And it immediately made me think of her declaration that she was going to make the unicorn. And Cassie's like, so you're not really going to do it, right? And she's like, of course I am. I'm not a liar. <laughs> <laughs> Which, and then, and, and we find out in one minute more that Markridge in the other timeline went under because of her promise <laughs> to create the unicorn. Yes, I remember, okay, that's right. I remember seeing them like, didn't they mention a unicorn in one minute more? They did. Or was I too busy crying? <laughs> <laughs> yes, she did. <laughs> okay, I've also got an incoming feels grenade. I'm gonna go ahead and warn oh, you no. this time. <laughs> oh God, trigger warning. Here goes. So what we get here is Jennifer revealing one of her life mottos, which is first rule of growing up goings, never trust daddy. (laughs) And I would just like to make it clear that it's highly likely she got that from Deacon. Oh, you're Who warned her when she was four that her dad was an asshole and never to forget it. Oh. Oh. What the fuck? Oh, Oh, shit. Uh, man oh and i so delight used to delight in that scene because it's so absurdly hilarious that they were fucking trapped in that room and she had the codes the whole time like what the <laughs> fuck <laughs> i love the look on cole's face like what the fuck jennifer <laughs> oh my god um, and so we mentioned it before, but the whole, like, we learn, you know, I, when they have the gun to Cole's head and Jennifer puts the code in anyway, and she has to make that choice, like, do I let them into the vault and risk them having the virus and all those people, like, 7 billion dying, or save Cole? There's possibly two layers to it now that we know what we know. You know, at the time, I thought, you know, the sort of the obvious read is that, they say multiple, anytime in a television show, you have people saying, Cole's important to you. <laughs> and you put like a gun at someone's head, you're going think, okay, obviously this character is, you know, Cole's important to Jennifer and we'll explore like what that means. But now I wonder if the voices in her head were telling her he can't die, right? Like there's a, there's a reason for the overall scope of things like for time that if Cole dies then they can't fix things so now like on rewatch there's kind of an added layer that I wonder if that's another reason why you know obviously she cares about I think already you can tell that like Jennifer doesn't I mean it's understandable like because it's just really sad like Jennifer doesn't have anyone in her life like this is like the first person in a while that was probably nice to her um but in addition it makes me wonder about the voices in her head and what they're telling her to do in that moment And then it ends, obviously, with Cassie being taken away. Cole gets the nosebleed. It's the first nosebleed we have in the show to signify that there's been a shift in time that will eventually be undone, but is the result of Cassie being killed, right, by the Pallid Man? And it's the first time Jennifer sees a character when she splinter away, when she sees Cole disappear. I have a feeling seeing someone disappear is not an uncommon occurrence for Jennifer. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Well, she's not. She's kind of like... 
She looks like a little confused, but it's definitely not like a what the fuck face <laughs> like maybe Cassie had in the pilot. So that's kind of interesting to think about. When they first met, though, you know, she cut him to verify that he was real. So now she's probably just like, well, I guess you weren't. (laughs) (laughs) Just another day in Jenniferville. So did you guys have anything else you want to talk about with the episode? Well, I guess I I think the thing, the biggest misconception um, with the end of this episode was, and I think it was probably how it was shot, was thinking that Cole was the the carcass, the little prehistoric frozen thing. Mm-hmm. Because when he gets, it's either the nosebleed or the headache. I can't remember which because I'm a horrible watcher of TV shows with very little attention to detail. Um, like, it, the sh- it's shot that they're, they're, it's linking the two things. It's linking the corpse with the pain. So I'm like, oh my god, okay, it's got to be Cole because he's getting close to it and he's experiencing a paradox. Because I thought, like, when you look at the paradox in the first episode, when the when the watches are getting close to one another, you would think that there's like some reaction between the watches as they, as they get close. And I read that as like it could be pain in human beings if you get close to another instance of yourself. Uh, of course, that was incorrect. We we later learn that it's uh, Olivia got her shit sliced in two, um, thanks to Cassie, and got <laughs> sent back in time. Which okay, so can you can can you guys explain to me how Olivia is the origin of a virus that she catches from herself, or is dor- or is dormant in herself? She she obviously has the virus in her, mm-hmm. but it's never like it never kills her. It's never active or whatever. Well, she's and she's immune, and she's also like super genetically engineered, right? But, but how can she be the origin of something and have it in her all throughout the show? I don't understand. Where does the virus come from? It could have been something new that was lying dormant within her the whole time. <gasps> so I could have a a. a a human killing plague with me in me well no but if you're immune oh god like you don't want the english major trying to explain this but like if you're immune and you have the immunities in your body it's because your body can recognize them right like when you get a shot you have like a live or dead version of 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 a virus or a vect in your body right so so but but could she have been genetically engineered to contain a virus and then goes her body is sent back and that virus is extracted out of it. Because I was looking at it as a closed loop with herself. What about the idea that she could have actually gotten it during the plague? But that's the thing is like, how does she get something that came from her? That's the thing is like, if you close loop it, that's where it makes no sense. So my personal take would be either that it was already lying dormant in her or just like her, it's a gin. This is the live sound of Jen's brain breaking. <laughs> well, this be, well, this is because when you guys refer to these people as gins, mm-hmm. was this in the show? Yeah. I don't remember. Yep, 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 yeah. In season four? Mm-hmm. Okay. I, I've only watched season four once, and to my defense, I think I was crying half the time. <laughs> so we if they were. slipped if they slipped gin in there, because a gin is a genie, right? Is the word D-J-I-N-N? Yes. 
Okay, I thought that was a genie. When it's referred to in the context of time, it's something that has no origin. So it couldn't exist without already having existed. It's something that's in a loop and not existing in a linear fashion. Okay, because again, my knowledge of what a jinn is basically comes from Magic the Gathering because there was a Mahatma jinn or, or something like that in, in there, in the blue creature. I think it was a 5-6 flying. Yeah, I'm a nerd. Shut up, guys. Uh, okay. So, well, but they could have they could have genetically engineered it into her as well, though, couldn't they have? Since she's a contrivance, basically. I don't see why not, but nobody has come out to confirm that that was the intention. All right. So I was all right. I was confusing myself because I was like, how did she get a virus from herself? Like that is a that makes no sense. Is she an Ouroboros? Is she a snake eating its own tail of viruses? I don't understand. And then I just went to bed and said, I'll ask you guys. So if it's not a closed loop, and yes, it is something that's either innate within her, it itself is gin, or they or they genetically engineered it, that makes that makes sense. Okay. I'm not as dumb. I'm not as dumb as I look, guys. Oh my God. No, Jen. Oh my God. So there are so many things that like when I've told people to watch and then they ask me and I'm like, I feel like I just end up saying, I mean, it's just all a loop. (laughs) It's all I I got, guys. They're like, wait, so then why the plague? I'm like, oh, it's just like, you know, it's just a circle. And like, I just, there are days, there are days that I can articulate it. The clouds part and I can articulate it. And there are days when the cloud, it it is cloudy and I can't. And today's a day where it's cloudy and I can't. (laughs) Uh, Again, I think, I think you can, I think you can explain a lot of this away by just going, look, if you just follow the the Jeremy Baramy model of time, <laughs> the, the, the the specific instance you're talking about is the dot over the eye, and that's that explains it. And then you just walk away. <laughs> it was Chris Monfett that said that the dot above the eye was lullaby. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> that kind of that just kind of fucking blew my mind. It's like Jesus Christ. Right? Like even after the show. Even after the show. (laughs) The writers are still doing that to us, damn it. Well, they should be fucking proud of what they created. Because I'm just like, ugh. And how a group of people did this. Like I can't even get people to join a conference call at the same time at work. (laughs) Guys. Uh, you know, and then trying to share a document on Skype is like, well, I don't, I don't see it. Are you yeah, sharing man, it? I'm like, I, yeah, I'm sharing it. I can't it. even get my kids in the, in the car to go to school in the morning. <laughs> so I know. And then so, for a writer's room to be this coordinated and, and to understand how this time travel shit works flawlessly within their own little ecosystem of, of minds. I'm like, I don't, you guys must do this for a living or something. <laughs> well, not only that, I mean. Given that, you know, all of the complications of that plot and understanding things that, like, the three of us can't, you know, had problems even articulating on this podcast to answer your question, which I'm pretty sure that we didn't answer it, (laughs) that they, they, like, that they crafted these characters that we, like, just love so passionately because they paid attention to all, you know, the thing that frustrates me the most when I'm watching a TV show is when a show starts ignoring the characters and not paying attention to character development. And so, you know, that's why I come back and I keep watching is because I care what happens to the people in the show. So, yes, the plot line is super cool. And, yes, it's really fun to, like, pick up on all the Easter eggs. But, like, we wouldn't be doing this podcast if we didn't, like, love these fictional characters like they were real people. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, right? my my like of stuff is, uh, is always character-driven. 
Like all the, the, the trimmings is good, but I like the turkey. <laughs> to bring it back to food again in Thanksgiving. Right. Um, so speaking of Thanksgiving, our next episode will be our, Ooh. do you like that segue? Our interview with Mr. Terry Metalis, which we are so excited about. Um, and we will get that out to you. Um, Terry answering your questions before Thanksgiving. You guys are like major league now, dudes. Uh, you're getting, you're getting like the head honcho. Jen, we have dogs panting on our podcast. <laughs> We are so not majorly. I'm in a room. I'm in a room like between, like behind two locked doors so that my kids don't come running up here. <laughs> we are not majorly. But but you just allow panting dogs and snoring dogs on your podcast, but can't can't abide by children, well, which I approve. I approve. I love my children, but they shouldn't participate. <laughs> Um, so remember to send your questions in by November 30th for Todd Stashwick. Um, and if you are rewatching along with us, the next rewatch episode, um, which will be in about two weeks, we're going to cover 106 through 108. So that is The Red Forest, The Keys, and Yesterday. Um, I would just like as a feels disclaimer, please make sure you have a box of tissues close to you. And perhaps if you partake a strong drink in hand, because we're going to talk a lot about the keys and dancing to these arms of mine and visions of the Red Forest and Cassie dying at the CDC. And it's just going to be... Yeah, like it, it just <sighs> it's going to be a lot. <laughs> um, and we, I'm, we're super excited. We're going to have Professor Aaron from the Metastation pod is joining us for that. And if you don't listen to Metastation, Aaron is an English professor. And I can't wait for her like brilliant brain to discuss those episodes. So we're super excited about that. And if you guys don't have anything else, then we'll see you soon.